beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? Builders must be strong. That line feels about right for Holy Week and Easter, doesn't it? The line is from Dr. Vincent Harding's song, and this version is a live recording of a group called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you today. I'm a UCC pastor in the place currently called Denver, here on Cheyenne and Arapahoe land, and the faith organizer for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. I'm glad to be back with you again. I hope that you've found the podcast for Lent to be edifying in the work of dismantling white supremacy. It was a gift to be able to host the contributors to recipients over those weeks. There are so many of us trying to do the good work of getting us all free, And that's a sign of hope. Well, it's also spring here on the Front Range, which means days that are in the 70s, alternating with ridiculous winds and snowstorms. In fact, we had a nice snowstorm last night, and today is a gorgeous sunny day with everything covered in inches of snow. It's beautiful, and I'm definitely not complaining. The land and the herbs and the creatures need the moisture so badly after a warm, dry winter. We need it too. A little moisture, a little fire from the longer hours of sunlight, all helping to green us up for the work to come. Do you feel it? The greening, quickening in our flesh and blood and breath. Women gather crying tears that fill a million oceans. It doesn't matter where you're living, the women gather. It's a little strange to be working on this podcast for Easter when it's still the beginning of Holy Week, 
and were in the aftermath of the March for Our Lives and in the fresh rage about the police murder of Stephen Clark and that the police who murdered Alton Sterling are going free. All of that, and so much more, is so very present, aching in our hearts, while we puzzle out the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. And the truth is we should always be writing our Easter sermons still holding the grief of Jesus' execution. To me, at this point in my spiritual journey, any Easter message that is not grounded in the reality of the brutality of Jesus' execution by Rome is at best an empty triumph, and at worst, a dangerous betrayal of his life and his community's experience. I've heard those Easter sermons, haven't you? The trumpet-blasted, poof, he's risen, Holy Week, what Holy Week versions that erase the state violence and fear and betrayal that precede the empty tomb. Maybe it's something to do with our culture's inability to deal with grief in helpful ways. Maybe it's something to do with white Christians' inability to recognize the power plays of Pilate unleashed on the body of an oppressed brown man. Maybe it's the way imperial Christianity turned this story into one about a sacrificial atonement for personal sin rather than a condemnation of imperial patriarchy that thinks it rules over life and death, a condemnation of state violence perpetrated against the oppressed. Maybe it's all of those things that disappear Holy Week faster than a trumpet fanfare. Yet all of the gospel stories of Easter start off in dawn's shadowed silence, in the aching trauma aftermath of Jesus' execution. And no matter which version we read, all of the stories start with the grieving women. The grieving women. The women gather crying tears that fill a million oceans. It doesn't matter where you're living, the women gather. The grieving women gather, carrying their herbs and ointments to love on the brutalized body of Jesus, carrying their aching, traumatized hearts right into the place of death. I wonder if we listen to them deeply, like sitting with grief requires. In John's Gospel, the women are gathered around Jesus as he is executed by Rome, a community of solidarity around him in his suffering. They don't look away. But on the first day, while it was still dark, it's Mary Magdalene alone who comes to his tomb. John's Gospel can often feel very in-the-clouds esoteric to me with all the long, often confusing speeches and debates that are hard to hold on to. But one thing I love about this gospel is how intimate the stories can be. How down in the dirt they are, with Jesus weeping, angry, moved to compassion, playing in mud. There are dead bodies that stink, and hands anointing and washing dusty feet. And this scene, Mary Magdalene in the shadowed silence, alone with her grief. She tries to tell the man, Peter and the mysterious other disciple. She runs to them when she first discovers the tomb empty, and they come, yes, and they look, and then they just 
go home? They go home. As far as we can tell, they don't go tell anybody. They don't announce anything. They leave Mary Magdalene alone and just go home. Maybe that's what verse 9 means that the other disciples saw and believed but did not understand because they just go home. They don't even seem to grieve. But the Magdalene stayed weeping. And it is the Magdalene grieving from the depths of her shattered heart who gets to see Jesus. The Magdalene whose grief is affirmed by angels and by Jesus alike. The Magdalene who is given a message. The Magdalene who is sent. The Magdalene who announces. Announces. The Greek verb, the root telling us her announcement is on the par of announcements from Caesar. News, good news, evangel, gospel. Mary Magdalene, the one who stays, the one who weeps. She is the one sent to announce that this story is far from over, that there is a future beyond crucifixion. The women gather, crying tears that fill a million oceans. It doesn't matter where you're living, the women gather. I love Mary Magdalene. I love her because she's brave. She has the courage to stay with her beloved while he's executed. She has the courage to risk staying right there in the rotten heart of state violence, surrounded by Roman police. She stays. She has the courage to sit in the presence of death, the courage to grieve and weep, the courage of her demanding longing for her beloved given voice to speak even to angels, the courage to be named and known, the courage to say yes to being sent and to announce what she has seen to a group of people who cannot manage to leave their locked room for weeks. Mary Magdalene, shattered apart by grief, has the courage to be whole. Her bravery, her courage, means that even the imperial patriarchy, which demonized sex and sex work and then interpreted that demonization back onto her body, even the imperial patriarchy cannot silence her, cannot deny the centrality of her role in announcing there is a future, a world beyond crucifixion. Peter and the unknown disciple went home. End of story. But Mary Magdalene stayed and wept and demanded. And because she did, she saw Jesus. She saw the future. There is a story told about Mary Magdalene, a story that speaks to her courage and her deep certainty about her experience with Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. The story is told that sometime after the resurrection, the Magdalene traveled to Rome. Now the reason she went to Rome was to meet with the emperor, Tiberius Caesar, to denounce the unjust trial of Jesus by Pilate, who we know was a Roman governor. The story goes that while they were meeting, the Magdalene announced, Christ is risen. 
Tiberius responded that there was as much chance of that as for an egg, which she was holding, to turn red. And the egg turned red. Supposedly, that's the story of why Christians do Easter eggs, but I want us to dig deeper. Easter eggs is a nice story if you don't want to challenge power. But Mary Magdalene goes to Rome to denounce Jesus' trial. That is to say, Mary Magdalene went to Rome to protest, to denounce injustice. Right in his face, she tells Caesar that what happened to Jesus was wrong. I can't imagine that Tiberius cares, can you? After all, the system's not broken. Pilate is running things exactly as the empire wants them to run. I can imagine Tiberius saying some version of whatever, he's dead and gone, end of story. He got what was coming to him. He fit the description. He should have kept his mouth shut. He should have held his hands up. He should have not been wherever he was, whatever. He's dead and gone. End of story. And in hearing something like that, the Magdalene announces, Christ is risen. He is not gone, and it is not the end of the story. Don't believe me? Just watch this egg turn red. I want to believe this story really happened. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but regardless, it's part of the lore around Mary Magdalene. Brave enough to confront Caesar, her power strong enough to withstand the attempt by the imperial patriarchal church to crush her and the truth of the centrality of her leadership. The story of Mary Magdalene denouncing the trial that results in Jesus' execution points to something important that I think we can also see in the story of her grief at Jesus' tomb. In the Rome story, Mary Magdalene believes Christ is risen, and her belief is affirmed with a miracle, the egg turning red. At the same time, she is there protesting Jesus' execution. She is saying his trial is a travesty, a grave injustice. She is saying that Jesus should not have died. She is saying that the crucifixion should not have happened. She is not saying that her belief that Christ is risen depends on believing that the crucifixion was some kind of salvific action atoning for personal sin. She's saying that crucifixion is a violent, unjust act of empire that was wrong and cost her the life of someone she loved. In John's story, it's Mary Magdalene's grief that teaches us. She has watched her beloved friend be hauled away by police, interrogated in a joke of a Roman trial, beaten and mocked by police, and she was there as they executed him, as he died, breathless, on a cross, hung there as a warning, hung there as a threat to their community, guilty of nothing but existing in a way the empire could not tolerate. She has witnessed all of this, and she has not turned away. Who would not weep? I can't imagine the trauma of witnessing that and still coming to the garden tomb in the deeply shadowed dawn to grieve, to weep. 
Her grief is her protest. Her grief is her protest. This should not have happened. This should never have happened. You see, the Easter story does not start off with some trumpet-blasted, poof, he's risen, Holy Week, what Holy Week story that erases the state violence and fear and betrayal that precede the empty tomb. Resurrection starts off with a grieving protest. This should not have happened. This should never have happened. Mary Magdalene's protesting, demanding grief is affirmed by angels and by Jesus, and it is out of that grief, out of that shattered heart, that she recognizes Jesus and realizes there is more to the story, that there is a future, a world beyond crucifixion. Jesus tells her, don't hang out here, go. Go and tell them Pilate couldn't kill me. Go and tell them. Keep doing our work. Keep doing our work. And she does. Peter and the other disciple go home. But Mary Magdalene stays, gives into her grief, and sees the future. Magdalene's announcement, her proclamation, I have seen him, Christ is risen, is an announcement towards a different future, an act of futuristic imagination that says this is not the end. This is not the end of him, and this is not the end of us. This community will survive, will continue. Jesus is with us, and we will have a different future. That's a futuristic imagination that comes right out of a roiling grief in the face of state violence. Likewise, it is our grief in the face of injustice that tells us the world does not have to be this way, that the world can be different, that we can imagine and act into a different future, a world beyond crucifixion, beyond state violence, beyond even white supremacy and capitalism and heteropatriarchy. It is that roiling grief in the face of state violence that announces a different future. Black lives matter, not one more. No ban, no wall. And I wanna be really clear here for us white Christians, because what Mary Magdalene's grief also teaches us is that an act of state violence, which is what crucifixion is, an act of state violence is not salvific it is devastating. It is not salvific, and it is only necessary to those who want to hold on to their power. The systems of domination in the Roman Empire were upheld by acts of state violence like this. And as long as we continue to proclaim in any way that crucifixion is necessary for our salvation, that state violence is necessary for our safety and comfort, we will miss the point of Mary Magdalene's grief. We will be like Peter and the other disciple who come and see and go home. End of story. Leaving the grieving 
alone. What I mean is, for white folk, we are the Romans, the ones whose power and privilege are upheld by state violence. The logic that state violence is necessary for our safety and salvation is a logic that is crucial to the enforcement of white supremacy. It is a logic that claims black and brown bodies are a threat to safety and that state violence via policing is necessary to keep us safe. But we as white folk have to listen to the mothers of color, their grieving protest. This should not have happened. This should never have happened. We white folk may say we get it, but as long as we are relying on systems of state violence to keep us safe, we are still proclaiming that salvation comes by crucifixion. We are proclaiming state violence is the end of the story. Listen to the grief of Mary Magdalene. Listen to the grief of the women gathered, crying tears that fill a million oceans. It's a strange Easter message, but Easter begins in the shadowed, silent dawn of grief. This should not have happened. This should never have happened. Mary Magdalene stays, gives in to her grief, and sees the future. This never has to happen again. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. you know some bullets find their targets bombs can take you right on cue some in the hands of babies or officials and their crew claimed the brother had a gun she fit the profile in my book running hiding taking cover didn't take the time to look somebody's mother brother best friend sister lover the women gather, crying tears that fill a million oceans. It doesn't matter where you're living, the women gather. Those are lines from a song by Sweet Honey in the Rock, The Women Gather. The refrain has been echoing in my head while I've been writing this. There's a link in the transcript where you can listen to this lament of a song. Easter begins in that grief in the face of state violence, and Mary Magdalene's futuristic announcement that Christ is risen indeed. To participate in that future beyond crucifixion, beyond the logic that state violence is necessary for white safety, Surge Faith has been organizing a campaign called Community Safety for All, in which we ask white faith and spiritual communities to examine the ways our institutions rely on policing and then begin to invest in alternative ways of assuring the care and safety of all our neighbors 
ways that don't rely on increased harm to people of color. So your Easter call to action is to check out that campaign. Go to showingupforracialjustice.org faith and read our Holy Week declaration, press release, and other campaign resources. There's a form there where you can sign up for more information and get connected to the campaign. Examining our relationship as white folk to the system of policing and withdrawing our support for, for that system is a clear way we as white folk can live into a resurrection future. Christ is risen indeed. Thanks as always for joining us today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from all of you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be back next week with Will Green giving us a resistance word for the text for April 8th. I also want to say a note of thanks to Adrienne Marie Brown and her work in emergent strategy on Afrofuturism, which helped me to think some about what was happening in this story from John. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. Finally, a big thanks to our sound editor this week, Paul Stewart. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Happy Easter. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you so much. Oh